Good morning. Today we are continuing on with our series that we've entitled Adventure vs. Anxiety. It's a series that we're spending a lot of time focusing on our decisions. What are the decisions we make in the small things and in the large things? And uh, a book by a family therapist named Edwin Friedman uh, says that in almost all of our decisions, it comes down to being made from one of two different postures, he says. There's a posture of adventure, which we as defined last week not as recklessness, but as hearing and discerning what is God saying to us and how can we respond. How can we be faithful in the things that God's called us to, even if it's scary, even if it's a little different, even if it calls us out of our comfort zone? And then secondly, if we are not making decisions from a posture of adventure, Friedman says that what we're really making them from is a posture of anxiety. Uh, And those can lock us in. Those can can just uh, freeze us up if we're not careful. That anxiety is necessary in our life, but if it starts controlling a lot of our decisions, then that's may not necessarily be the way to really understand the fullness of life God has for us, okay? Today we're going to talk some about how do you start knowing what adventures you're supposed to launch into and how do you know uh, what you're supposed to do when you face them? How do you discern that? And part of what we want to talk about today is the importance of community in that, the importance of relationships. You and I live in a culture that suffers from an epidemic, and it is an epidemic of individualism. It is an epidemic where we have decided this is my life and this is how I see it and this is the decisions before me and this is what I'm going to do because I'm in charge of my decisions. And one of the things that is essential to understanding as people of faith is that the only ways that we really understand what does God want me to do, how does God want me to face these challenges or these giants uh, that may be in front of us is to do so as part of a community, is to do so as part of a family is to do so in connection with one another. So that's what we're going to be talking about today, and we're going to do so from the lens of uh, selected verses from 1 Samuel 17. Now, 1 Samuel 17, we've been looking at throughout this series. It's the story of David and Goliath, but we're going to take some selected verses um, that start with verse 19 uh, and then move forward. This is what it says. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah, fighting with the Philistines. David rose early in the morning, left the sheep with a keeper, took the provisions, and went as Jesse had commanded him. He came to the encampment as the army was going forth to the battle line, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage, ran to the ranks, and went and greeted his brothers. And he talked with them, the champion of, as he talked with them, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before, and David heard him. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. David said to Saul, let no one's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Now, We have a couple of images we're going to bring up here. The first is a map that I want to go ahead and bring up today because to get at our point, we need to understand the full context of what's happening in this very familiar passage of Scripture. The Philistines are the armies of Israel. 
Now, the Philistines originated, we think, from the island of Crete in the Mediterranean. They were originally a seafaring people who do what people do over time, which is try to gain more power. And so they gained more power by conquering different lands. They had sailed from Crete in the Mediterranean. They had sailed east to uh, the land that we now know of as Israel and Palestine. And where they had conquered and kind of set up uh, in, uh, before 1 Samuel 17, is these, there were these five cities uh, that they had controlled and that formed their sort of confederation. And they had occupied them for years, occupied the people there, occupied these villages and tribes and towns, and they had established their own way of being. But what they really wanted to do was after establishing that, they wanted to move to the east, where the real centers of population were for Israel, which is Jerusalem, the capital, and then some of the other towns like Bethlehem and Hebron that are there. And so how to do that and how you do that is that you had to move uh, from this coastal region to or towards Jerusalem through some valleys because you're going up in elevation. Jerusalem is in hills, okay? And so the way that you journeyed, especially with an army, was that you traveled through from the west to the east along these valleys. And the valley that they chose to travel in is the Valley of Elah. Now the Valley of Elah yeah, it's famous for uh, other armies that tried to move from the west towards Jerusalem. The Crusades uh, had several battles, huge battles that were fought, fought in the Valley of Elah as European soldiers trying to recapture Jerusalem, just as we see here, landed their ships and marched up through the valleys. And the Valley of Elah was where several battles of the Crusades were fought. The reason that armies would want to engage other armies in the valley is because there's a strategic advantage anytime you're fighting of holding the high ground. So what happens is, is that the Philistines are traveling along this line here through the Valley of Elah from west to east trying to get to Jerusalem and Saul raises an army that comes down to get between Jerusalem and the Philistine army. And so what they do is that they're on the northern edge uh, sort of where this town of uh, Ezekah is, they're on the northern ridge and they start following the Philistine army, but they have the high ground. They're on the ridge line and the Philistine army's in the valley. So the Philistine army sort of says, well, we're kind of sitting ducks down here. If they attack us, they'll be coming downhill at us. So the Philistines, then they climb the opposing ridge. They're down uh, around this, this town of uh, Soko. And so they're down here on the southern ridge, and they're being mirrored by the Israel, army of Israel, which is on the northern ridge, and who is keeping themselves between the Philistines and towns to the north like Jerusalem. Does that make sense? So you've got these two armies sort of locked in, in, in stalemate on these two ridges with this valley floor in between them, and neither of them is going to charge. Because if you charge, you have to charge down from your high point, down into the valley where you're a sitting duck, and then you have to climb the ridge to the opposing army who has the high ground, and it gives them a huge advantage over you. And so they're just locked in this stalemate. So what the Philistines do is they then decide to resort to a tactic of battle that was not uncommon in the ancient world, and it's called single combat. Single combat. Single combat is like it sounds, and it's like what happens in this passage, where instead of having two armies fight, you send one of your champions to fight the champion of the other army on neutral ground, and the winner would decide the entire battle. So the Philistines challenge uh, Israel to a, a battle of single combat. 
This is how great ancient warriors gained their fame. One of the most famous, for example, is Achilles. If you've heard of the Greek warrior Achilles, um, Thucydides writes about him, and uh, Achilles was not just some warrior uh, who had uh, you know, a, a big adventure. Achilles gained his fame by fighting in single combat for his king. He was known as such a champion. His king would allow him to fight to decide an entire battle, and, Th- uh, and Achilles' name spread and became well-known to the point that Brad Pitt then played him in a movie, which is, you know, kind of a big deal, right? Who would play you? Brad Pitt. Of course he would. So that's Achilles. You gained a lot of, of, of notoriety through this. And so the Achilles for the Philistines was Goliath. Goliath was a proven champion. Goliath was, uh, the scriptures tell us, a certain number of cubits high, and so academics and and people much smarter than me uh, have to debate what a cubit is, and no one can quite decide what a cubit actually is, but we know it's roughly what it is, and we know that Goliath was at least six feet nine inches tall. Okay, and maybe a bit taller. He was huge. He was enormous. And so he's this champion that comes out, this you know, almost seven-foot giant. He would come down from the southern ridge from the Philistine army. He'd go into the valley floor, and he would taunt and yell at the Israelites to send one of their champions down for single combat. But as we read last week, it says that Saul and the, ar- and the soldiers of Israel were locked, and they were paralyzed in what? Fear, we read about, and dismay. They were locked in fear and dismay because they looked at Goliath and like, no one can fight him. We all know how single combat works, um, and Goliath was massive. He had three kind of types of armor and instruments. He had a huge sword that he carried with him. He had a spear. It says that it's, if you read in the passage we've read before, it's thicker than a weaver's beam, it says. This was a spear that he could only throw. It was very heavy. He could throw it at really close range, but it was so powerful that even if you had a shield up or your armor on, it would penetrate you and could kill you even through your armor. And then lastly, he was in a helmet and he had um, body armor on that, that historians think probably weighed about 100 pounds. So he's this massive guy just full of armor with this huge sword and this spear, and he knew how to use them and, he, and had, had triumphed over many other soldiers. And he's taunting Israel. And for 40 days, he comes down from the southern ridge and he goes into the valley and he says, who's going to fight me? Who's going to fight me? And all the soldiers hear this taunt and they are paralyzed. Except for on the 40th day, something happens. There's this young teenager named David who shows up because his father Jesse has told him to bring some provisions to his older brother, uh, three older brothers who are fighting in this battle. They're not fighting much, so they're kind of, they need provisions. They're sitting around for 40 days just not doing anything. And David hears Goliath's taunts, but David hears them as a shepherd rather than a soldier. I want to say that again because it's really important. You get this. David doesn't hear the taunts and challenge of Goliath like a soldier because he's not a soldier. He hears it different from everyone else there. He hears it as a shepherd. Now, as a shepherd, David knew how to fight, and that's clear in the passage. It says that he has had his um, family's flock of sheep attacked by lions and attacked by bears, and he has fended them off through fighting. David is experienced as a shepherd, and he knows how to fight, but shepherds fight differently than soldiers. Shepherds fight with an instrument that is known as a sling. And a sling, and just so we're clear, was not some little toy that like, you can buy at the dollar store that's like the little stick with the V and the rubber band that you pull back and sort of launch you know, like pebbles at people. It was something very different. And this is another illustration we have. 
It was an instrument that could be used in war as well. And a sling, as David would have had it, was two leather cords that were a couple of feet long. And at the end of these cords was a single pouch where you'd put a rock. And then the shepherd would take their sling and they'd start rotating it like this, faster and faster and faster and faster and faster, until you couldn't hardly see it anymore. It was going so fast. And it would be making six or seven revolutions per second. I mean, just kind of faster than your eye can see. And at the right time, the shepherd who was sling, had this sling would move it and then release least one of the two cords. He would hold on to one, and the rock would come hurtling out at over 100 miles an hour. It was like a bullet coming out of a gun. And we know from history that shepherds who had these kinds of, of slings, or as soldiers were called, slingers, which is a very original name for them, that they could be accurate up to a couple of inches to 35 or 40 yards Okay, so these guys could, or these women, they could hit birds out of the sky if they were close enough. So they were incredibly accurate with these rocks that were going 100 miles an hour. And modern forensic scientists have done tests that if you were hit, for instance, in the forehead with one of these rocks, it would crack your skull instantly and you were probably dead. At best, you were knocked unconscious and you were defenseless for your opponent to come and finish you off. And that's one of the two happens to Goliath. David doesn't hear the taunt of Goliath like a soldier where you make a bunch of decisions about how you fight with swords and spears and there's this whole ritual and tradition and everything else. David hears differently. He hears Goliath's taunt as a shepherd. And he fights like a shepherd. David doesn't see some big undefeatable giant in front of him David, as a shepherd, sees a really big target that can't move. Seriously. Malcolm Gladwell makes the point that the moment David started doing this, everything changed. That when he came down from the northern ridge into the valley, everyone had a reaction. Goliath, we know, has a reaction. He says, who are you to come at me? Who are you that you're the best they can do? We know that most likely that the soldiers of Israel saw David coming forward and had the exact same reaction. They're like, are you kidding me? He's fighting for us? We are definitely in a lot of trouble. And we know that most likely that the, the uh, army of the Philistines on the southern ridge saw David coming down and thought, this is in the bag. This is going to be so easy. But Malcolm Gladwell says as soon as David started doing this and knew and they knew that he could use a sling with deadly accuracy, that in a moment it was like a light bulb went on for everybody. That as soon as he did that, before he even threw the rock, most likely all of the Israelites went, we're going to win. Most likely all of the Philistines said, oh my goodness, we're in trouble. And most likely Goliath knew he was going to die. Because if you know how to do that really well, Goliath's never going to get close enough to you to use his sword. David is not some superhero that none of us can imagine being. David heard the challenge of Goliath not like everyone else. Everyone else there was a soldier and made certain assumptions about how single combat worked. David didn't break any rules. He just changed the tradition a little bit. He just saw it from his own perspective and fought like a shepherd and won. 
Why is community important? Why is it essential? It's essential because you see life the way you see life. You see your life from your perspective. And it's not that you're always wrong, and it's not that it's not enough all the time, but there are times when it won't be enough. It are times when your perspective will not be the complete truth as to what's happening. There will be times when you will face odds, when you will face giants, when you will face obstacles that seem absolutely insurmountable, and sometimes the easiest solution to a complicated problem is getting the perspective of someone different. David sees and fights like who he is, and it's different than everyone else there. Abraham Lincoln was accused of this. And I've been reading about different leaders and and, and common traits of leaders that makes them effective over time. And one of the things that you read about over and over and over again is that like Abraham Lincoln, really good leaders who are effective over time always are trying to learn and gather in different perspectives. They're always trying to gain new information and perspectives and sometimes even allow their minds to be changed. Now, as a leader, you've got to own your decision. You've got to make it and own it. But before you make it, you are welcoming in different points of view. The least effective leaders over time are the ones who say, I know how this works. I'm in a position to make this decision, and I'm telling you this is what we're going to do. Because we are locked into seeing things from one perspective, and sometimes it's not the full picture. Abraham Lincoln used to bother people around him who agreed with him because he would listen so much to other points of view. But that's not a position of weakness. It's a position of strength. It's a position that understands our own limitations and therefore welcomes in different viewpoints. Listen to me, folks. One of the most important decisions any of you will ever make is whether to pursue community that you give the authority to speak into your life. One of the most important decisions you will ever make is whether to pursue community that is allowed to speak with authority into your life. Whether you welcome that in different perspectives in or not. Because we all at times need David's to help fill out the picture of what's going on before us. That one of the most important parts of church is creating in a growing and a large church like ours, we've got to find pockets of intimate community where everyone can get involved and find those voices who can speak with with authority into their lives. We all got to find our Davids. And so we're doing that. We work at Midweek Connect and through youth group and through uh, children's ministries and through uh, all these different things that we do. But we want to do more. We understand that we need to lean more into this as a church. And so in the months that are coming, we want you to know that we're going to be launching a whole new round of small groups. The first time we've done this in a long time, that it's going to be church-wide, available for anyone to get involved. We're going to start training leaders for this in order to create pockets of community where anyone can come 
in order to have folks that walk with them and pray with them and speak from new perspectives into each other's lives. We're talking about retreats. We're starting new Sunday school classes. We're trying all different kinds of things because we need to have just countless opportunities for folks to come together and say, this is where I'm having folks speak into my life. This is where I'm seeing different perspectives. This is where my horizons are being expanded rather than me shutting down in anxiety and going, hey, I'm in charge and I'm gonna make this decision. That is almost always not the way you wanna live. It is not enough to just be here on Sunday for an hour. It is not enough for your walk. We must have people that we are doing life together with and speaking truth and hearing truth from one another. David is not some superhero that we can't be. David had a different perspective than every professional soldier who was there and his perspective and his fighting ability made all the difference in the world. And if we could have that, it would change our lives more than just about anything else. So that when we come here on Sunday, we don't just look out and go, oh, I know them and you know they go to this school or they're in this work here and their kids have this resume and it's how amazing they are and we have these five second window dressing excuses for community on the patio and feel like we know people because we know their names and, and their background and what college team they call for. This isn't about having more people you can play golf with. It's not about having more people that you hang out with and watch games with. It's about having people speaking into our lives so that when we're out here and when we're together and when we're out on the patio, we're not just saying, oh yeah, you may see Nathan here or you may see Dustin here or you may see Jill here or you may see Bill here or you may see Chuck here. That's who you may see. But you know what I see when I see them? I see David. I see somebody that spoke into my life when I was struggling with obstacles and and, 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 and giants and all kinds of things that I didn't know the way forward on. And by their perspective, by them speaking from their point of view, my horizons and my future changed as never before. Sometimes it's that simple. And we miss it because we're professional Christians who just make decisions the way we do and we know how it works. And sometimes we all need a David. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would help us to make this decision and make it again and again, to gather with people who can speak the truth and love to us, who can walk with us and pray with us, that you would help us find these pockets of intimate community where we welcome in different perspectives because while we may sit there and go, how can that be enough? We see with David that sometimes it is. Sometimes a different perspective can change everything. So may we pursue this and seek this and find this and may different perspectives change us all, change our lives as David changed history. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.